Good morning and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. Through the years on the show, I've gotten to speak to a lot of cool people, heard about a lot of interesting careers. Um, you know, at Jew in the City, we like to highlight Orthodox Jews doing things outside the box. We like to highlight people doing acts of kindness. But there's another piece of our work um, that I think is really crucial to our mission, and that is making Torah, making Orthodox Judaism palatable to modern times, um, have um, a cool career and be Shomer Shabbos. And it's another thing to be able to eat great food or take a great vacation or hear about people doing, you know, wonderful acts of kindness or fixing the world and be Orthodox. But how do we live with the religion itself? Um, how do we find meaning in the mitzvos? How do we find um, answers or sort of comfort in difficult passages in the Torah or parts of Halacha? Um, how do we come to terms with parts of our religion or our books that don't seem to fit so easily into modern 21st century times? And that is where today's guest falls out. Um, his, name I, his name is Rabbi Jacob Bromwitz. We have been honored and privileged to have him part of our team as a regular contributor for several years now. I don't even try to say numbers of years because I I think my kids are still like four, so everyone has grown up. But Rabbi Abramowitz, thank you so much for joining us here today. Oh, thank you for having me. And we, um, the exciting news about why we're having you on today is that you have recently published yet another book. How many books have you published so far? Uh, this is my seventh. Wow, seventh. It's the, the Shabbos book. Um, and what's special about this book is that this is actually a Jew in the city and Rabbi Abramowitz uh, sort of partnership. Um, these are the Ask Rabbi Jack questions, that the Q&As that come from JewInTheCity.com. Um, and so we're just so excited to talk to you about um, kind of how you became you, how you how you you know come to these answers and a little bit about sort of previewing for our listeners um, what they can find in Ask Rabbi Jack as seen on Jew in the City. Um, so if you could start us off, tell us a little bit about um, what your Jewish background and education was before you became Rabbi Jack. Um, I think I had a pretty normal background in my in my younger days, I went to Hebrew school. In the high school years, I went to yeshiva day school. I went to yeshiva after high school. I went to yeshiva university. I learned in a yeshiva uh, near my home when I was first married. You know, nothing, nothing remarkable, like pretty standard, you know, modern orthodox kind of background. Um, Wait, so, so did you, you said public school at the beginning. Is your family Boston? I didn't say public school. I said I went to Hebrew school, but oh. yes, you, you correctly inferred that uh, that because I went to Hebrew school, I, I was in public school in the elementary grades. Yes, that's correct. And so did did you become a Balchuva? Did your family become a Balchuva? Did you go to public school, but you were always modern Orthodox? Just what's So my parents got involved with Chabad when I was around fourth grade. Um, so that that moved them a little to the right. And they moved to a uh, what, what one would call, or at least what we called at the time, Conservadox. Uh, little synagogue in our town. Uh, I call it conservadox. It's like the, the the sitter was orthodox, but nobody who went there was. If you understand uh, the, uh, you know, the uh, the machitza was a screen, literally a screen. So, you know, it was it was like a foot in in more than one camp. Um, but a number of years later, I got involved in NCSY, and that moved me more to the religious right. And my parents came along somewhat in my wake. 
So, uh, so a little of uh, their influence on me and then more of my influence on them. But uh, I, I credit NCSY uh, for uh, uh, presenting, as, as you said, palatable, you know, so presenting uh, religion in a way that made it speak to me, that made it relevant to the world as I understood it. It contextualized the way I would say, uh, you know, religion uh, for, for me in the then 20th century. And uh, that's, that's what had the influence on me. Um, and so just for where, where did you grow up? I'm assuming the New York area, cause your accent sounds kind of like my accent. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm from Long Island. Uh, I, I don't really sound, uh, it's funny that you say that because, uh, when I was growing up, everyone would say, you're not from New York, are you? Cause my mother was from New England. Um, but, oh. uh, yeah, I'm, I'm from Long Island. And, no, uh, I was thinking it was a typical Jewish sort of New York area, but I was waiting for you to fill in the blank. So then, so now let's go a little bit deeper into what was your, um, what was your sort of experience with Hebrew school Judaism? I remember mine was horrible. It was irrelevant. It was boring. It was like, I was proud to be Jewish, but there was so little relevance sort of to what they were teaching there. And then what was the shift um, in NCSY? How, how did they reach you? How did they speak to you to make it palatable? Do you have any memories specifically of like, oh, this is something that I want more of? Well, the thing about Hebrew school was it was just one more class. So during the day, I would take math and science, and then, you know, twice a week, I would go and take, you know, things about the Jewish holidays or what have you. Uh, it, it wasn't uh, particularly spiritual. It wasn't particularly, uh, it didn't invest me uh, emotionally in the content. So it didn't offend me. I wasn't appalled by it. So, you know, it didn't drive me away, but it also didn't rope me in. It was it was just there, mm -hmm. uh, much the same way that that most classes that you take in school are, are just there. It's something you got to do. Mm -hmm. uh, had, had no context for life any other way. Again, you know, five days a week is school and two of those days is this supplemental education. That's just the way the education was. Um, NCSY was enlightening to me because the, the people were religious. They were observant. Um, they were down to earth. They were normal people with whom you could have normal conversations and uh, and again, they presented things in a way that seemed to have relevance. You, know, you can read the Book of Ruth on uh, Shavuos, but I, I don't relate to gleaning. These are not things, you know, like you know, people like, well, you know, take the field, but you have to marry this girl. Like I can understand the story, but it, it's then it's a long time ago. So so seeing it living and breathing and not in, in a way that seemed like like, you know how tourists come and they go to Brooklyn and, and they act like it's the Amish. Mm -hmm. And mind you, we shouldn't act that way about the Amish either. You know? But I'm just saying is it, it's sort of like, like a human zoo exhibit. You know, look at the, the other and how different they are. Uh, but it wasn't like that. These were people who wore yarmulkes and were normal. And uh, uh, it was just a new experience uh, that spoke to me in that way. So it started off first sort of as a social, a sort of a, it, socially it felt um, warm and um, I guess relatable. And then from there, you could open your mind up to how the intellectual piece fit in. Is that the right order? Uh, I imagine so. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the intellectual part was never off-putting to me. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I needed to, to worm my way into that, to be drawn in by the social. Uh, I always enjoyed the intellectual part of it. Uh, but I think the social helped to make a synthesis of both things. You know, you can study about something but not live it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this this kind of 
illustrated that this was something that could be both studied and lived. Uh, but yes, there was obviously uh, in a youth organization a social aspect, and uh, I'd obviously belonged to other social organizations in my youth, the Boy Scouts and what have you. But this was something that, again, for me personally, I found more to my life. So it, it hit on many cylinders for me. When did you decide you wanted to be a rabbi and uh, spend your life inspiring other people? I, I don't know that that's like a decision, like just one day you wake up and you say, here's, here's a career path. Um, I think very much life just leads you in a direction and things work out the way they work out. So because of my involvement with NCSY, I stayed involved with NCSY even after I graduated high school. I worked in the kitchen for a couple of years, then I became an advisor, and I went to work for the, the national organization many years later. Um, so, so I was already on a path that, while, while I was in college, wasn't my intended career path, uh, but it was something that I was involved with consistently throughout. And it's, it's just where life took me. So I did, I did work. I was director of admissions at Toro College for a decade, and I was studying at a local yeshiva. I was living in Brooklyn at the time, so I was studying there. So, so did I ever plan to do what I do now? No, I just ended up doing what I do now. The pieces came together on their own. So sometimes pieces come together because, you know, you said your life was on a trajectory, but did you, at a certain point, I mu you must have discovered that you have a certain talent for um, making difficult concepts easy to understand. Um, I know that that's a talent that I saw in myself in my own journey in becoming observant. Um, I was very thoughtful and philosophical. And as I was approaching different mitzvos, I would sort of try them on and, you know, talk to different people and either come to certain conclusions myself about how it was meaningful or sort of collect different information from different people, but sort of able to synthesize um, either between my own ideas or different things I heard, different approaches to things that I think a lot of people struggle with or don't get answers to. When and how did you find that you were able to do this? And then kind of how did that lead into your um, writing and your career um, as the editor of OU Torah? Well, this was always something that I knew I was good at, even, even as a young child. I'm, I'm a good explainer. Everyone has something that they're good at. Some people are talented musicians. Some people are gifted athletes. Some people, you know, make brilliant Torah insights. I'm good at explaining concepts in a variety of ways to different audiences. And again, to contextualize so that things that seem absolutely, you know, this is for 3,000 years ago, it makes no sense. People aren't like that. Turn it around a little, look at it from another angle. And again, you don't have to agree with everything, but you can understand it. So this was always something I happened to be good at. I, I used it you know, when I was an NCSY advisor, for example. Uh, when I went to work for the national organization of NCSY, and I would just receive emails randomly, and people would have questions. And I would go to the Shabbatonim, and I would do a session in the afternoon where I would take questions, et cetera. So it was just something I was good at and something that I did. Uh, so I suggested we should make an email address so that people who have these questions can send them to this email address. And we did, and that was Ask NCSY. And uh, later, the OU in general started sending me a number of questions. And uh, even though they had nothing at all to do with, with my department any more than anyone else's department, I would ask my colleague, uh, why are you sending this to me? And she would say, I like the way you answer it. So, okay, you know. So it was just something I was 
good at. And again, life just happens. So uh, when you and I first met and I shared with you some of my pamphlets and brochures and I asked about working with you and, and uh, you know, I, I didn't have in mind, you know, should I be the, the question and answer guy? But that's what you needed and I was able to do it. And uh, again, things just happen while we're walking down our paths. I never asked you this before, but now that we're, you know, on a radio show, I might as well do it. What drew you to Jew in the City? What did you see that we were doing that made you um, want to be a part of our team, which we are so grateful that uh, you are? But how did you hear about it? And what, what did you see that it was sort of answering the need of? Well, you came to the OU at one point and uh, met with Rabbi Berg. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there was some discussions there at the time. And uh, we had a very, a very brief hi, hello at the time. Um, but uh, your site, uh, the articles that you write, the videos that you make, you know, we're, we're very much of like minds in terms of approach. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know how many people out there have similar approaches, but you and I definitely were on the same page in, in most things as far as how to address them, how to explain them. And uh, it just seems a good venue uh, for sharing of ideas. Totally. Who, who inspires you uh, in terms of Jewish leadership, rabbinics? Like where, who do you look to as a model of, um, you know, who answers questions well when you have a question? Who does the, who does the answer go to when he has a question? <laughs> um, I have certain colleagues who I know would, would prefer that I not name them, so I'm not going to name them. Uh, but there are certain colleagues at work who when a halachic question comes, and it's above my pay grade because I'm, I'm not a posake. I can answer questions. Everyone should answer questions. If, if someone says, can you flush the toilet on Shabbos? If you know the answer, you should answer it. Everyone can and should answer what they can. And when you don't know, you should, you should take it up a level. So there are some people at work to whom I take the halachic questions. And, and that's you know, where I get uh, that next level up. But beyond that, uh, you know, then I may have to go beyond that. Rehearsal Schachter, for example, uh, he's he's someone who I may have to go higher on the ladder to. Rev. David Cohen. Um, so there are up and up the ladder. Uh, but you know, asking questions is different than than needing to go for you know, like a, a psak in a in a halachic uh, quandary. So I, I don't know that at, that at this stage. I'm conceiving of so many questions that that I need to go for that kind of information. It's mostly in the halakhic thing that uh, that I find myself going up the the chain. Um, I did have what about one back in the day? Years. Yeah. Well, all right. Back in the day, so sure, my NCSY advisors when I was in school, my regional director, Rabbi David Orlovsky, uh, he was great to go to. He's he's a great explainer. Honestly, uh, had a lot of influence on me in my my high school and college years. Um, so, so I would have to say that he was my biggest influence. Um, but I'm just remembering one incident, um, when I was, oh, this, this is more than 20 years ago. Um, so it was Sukkis, first day of Sukkis, and I had a collapsed lung and they took me to the hospital and that's where I was for the rest of the week. And you know how they say that on Sukkis, if it rains that first day, you know, it's a sign of God's displeasure because he just came out of Yom Kippur and he's saying, I don't want you to do this mitzvah of eating in the sukkah. So I was feeling particularly bummed about being hospitalized because I'm like, well, the weather's beautiful. God wants everyone else to eat in the sukkah except for me. <laughs> that was like already a question. 
you know, that kind of question. Uh, and, you know, thankfully, these questions don't arise too often in my life. But that was one time I had it. Uh, and, and I remember the uh, hospital uh, chaplain, uh, Jewish chaplain came and was visiting with me, Bikor Cholim, and, uh, and I was talking it out with him, you know, because um, it, it's hard to take the things that you would say to other people and say them to yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes you, you need that, that sounding board. You need that other person to be part of the conversation. Not everything can be a monologue. So what, what is your process? Because, um, you know, I think a lot of the things that I answer or that, you know, I speak of were really my own journey in taking on mitzvahs and trying to find, you know, ways to make them meaningful where I find myself getting stuck when I get stuck. And obviously I get stuck. I'm not claiming to know everything or be any, uh, giant Tamachacham. It's some of those difficult passages in the Torah. So what does your process look like as you're formulating an answer? Like, let's say, you know, we send something over like, whoa, have you seen this, you know, this Gemara? That's really troubling. Like, ah, what do we do with that? Like, how do you approach a sort of a troubling passage somewhere to say, hmm, maybe the rabbis weren't horrible people. Maybe there's some other explanation we could get to here. Well, being a part of it for so many years, I think I would have a pretty good handle on if we were secretly terrible. I think like <laughs> someone would have told me this by now. So from the fact that, that so far as I can see, we are not racist, for example. Uh, we're not misogynistic. Since, uh, since these are things that I haven't come across, then when people come to me with such things, I'm starting from the assumption that they have misinformation. And I, I think you may have alluded to, uh, there's sites online that's nothing but passages from the Talmud taken out of context in order to make Jews look like we conspire to, uh, to cheat non-Jews or, or that we turn a blind eye to, uh, to abominations that, uh, that people commit, et cetera. You, you know to what I refer, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and these things are all out of context. Uh, I remember one that I was sent um, that uh, the person was, uh, was saying that the Rambam says something that's incredibly racist against black people. And he, he was quoting a source in Mora Nebuchim, and I have learned Mora Nebuchim, and I don't remember the Rambam being racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went and I looked up the thing, and of course it's out of context. Mm-hmm. So the person is saying that, uh, the Rambam is saying that a person who doesn't have a God isn't like a, a whole, a complete person because he's missing an important aspect. And he says that this can be the Ethiopians you know, down there, this can be the, the Caucasians up there, this could be people in my own city. You know, he gives numerous examples, one of which happens to be in Africa. Mm-hmm. And, and so this person sent the question saying, you know, the Rambam says that the Africans aren't wholly human. Mm-hmm. No, he says a person with no theology is missing an important part of being human. And this applies to everyone, even people in his own city, he says. Mm-hmm. So, yes, if you cherry pick things, you can make any religion look horrible. You can make any religion look wonderful. Context is important. You got to read the whole page. You can't just read the one line floating in, in a void and pretend that you know what it means. So when when people come with things that look appalling, then you know what they're they're usually out of context. Um, other times we need to provide context. For example, a lot of people when they read things in the in the Torah about, for example, the the sota, the woman suspected of adultery. They don't understand what it means, and they get the wrong impression. They picture this woman being dragged to the temple and, like, her mouth being held open while Kohanim pour the water down. 
you know, and it was nothing like that. Mm -hmm. You know, the woman was warned about seclusion with a particular man, and then she was secluded with that man anyway, so there was a reason to be suspicious. She could opt into the process, she could opt out of the process, until the very end of the process to which she had agreed the entire time, she was a participant. You know, there was, there was no coercion in this. Um, but again, people read into things a surface reading, even if they're not looking for trouble, they don't have the full picture, and context is important. Now, again, you can like or not like it. Mm -hmm. you, you don't have to like it, but it's not what people think. Um, that, to use the Sota, it's literally the only case in the Torah where God says that he will personally judge a court case. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, he got no complaint. And if you don't believe it, then literally nothing happens. So again, what is there to, right. to be upset about? So, so we have to enlighten people onto what they read in their in their hurt squamish is not necessarily the entirety of the story very good point um any questions that stand out in your minds as wackiest question you ever got or favorite question you had to answer sort of any any question or topic that's covered in this book that uh you'd want to mention now is something that people should check out it's it's funny that you ask about wacky questions because I was originally going to collect the wacky questions, and I ended up collecting the normal questions that, that ran on the website. But I get plenty of wacky questions. Uh, but you know what? They're not wacky to the people who ask them. Uh, it, it's, it's sort of like, you know, there are no foolish questions. That might seem silly to us because we know the answers, but, but they're not foolish to the people who ask them, and this is how they learn. So the, the funniest question that I remember all these years, um, in fact, I mentioned this in the introduction to uh, to the book, is somebody who wrote me long, 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 long time ago. Uh, the question was, if a glob of dough is stuck to the ceiling after a food fight, does it have to be removed before Pesach because a dog can't reach it? And I said to this person, you know, you, you have a fundamental misunderstanding about the difference between being fit for a dog to eat and a dog's ability to access it. So, you know, it's, you know, you have to get rid of chametz, which is fit for a dog to eat. This is fit for a dog to eat. The dog's inability to climb a ladder doesn't really, you know, play into it. Um, but it's just the, the idea of, of this question, is this something that happened in their life? Was this a hypothetical? You just got to wonder where this particular scenario, Pesach or not, I would take the dough off my ceiling. Um, but still, that, that stuck with me all these years that it's just, there's there's everything out there, and you know it, it's easy to smile at some of these questions, but of course it's important to the one who asked it. So I'll I'll talk about a few of mine that I think people should uh, take a look. When first of all, where can they purchase Ask Rabbi Jack, a scene on Jew in the City? Well, they can get it from the Kodesh Press website. Uh, they can get it on Amazon. Um, I, I think it's on BarnesandNoble.com also. Uh, so Wherever hopefully it'll soon be in your local Judaica store. Awesome. I would say some of my favorite uh, topics here, just sort of going through the table of contents, um, table of contents, there we go, that's English, um, davening on airplanes, that's not mm -hmm. a difficulty in text, but that's kind of a difficulty in Jews, I think there's so many people that have been on a flight, and it's just, it's not a good setup to sort of have a minion happen, sort of, with whatever the arrangement is, whether it's the time of day, or where people are, and they see that, you know, there are people that are getting up and making all sorts of trouble 
um, making a minion and making people uncomfortable and it causing a chil Hashem. And so that was, I think, a really important Q&A that we did there. Um, right. sort of well, diving on airplanes, that's the perfect example of a case where you're supposed to do something, but you're supposed to do it in normal situations. Right. And in that case, I think that the majority, well, I know that the majority of halakhic authorities say to sit in your seat, don't get in the way. There's a few outliers, but the majority would say that. But most people don't know that. They know we're supposed to dive and we're supposed to make a minion. Yes, on the ground, in your home, in your shul, not in an airplane, not necessarily during a pandemic. And it's a question of taking what people think they're supposed to do and adapting it for new context. Context, all about context. I also love, is the Torah racist? Um, I, unfortunately, um, have met people who sort of cherry pick, there we go again, out of context, different sources that would make the Torah seem racist. Right, um, like Rambam that I mentioned earlier. Exactly, and it's so important to be able to just sort of face these uh, sources head on and speak to why they are not racist. And it's, I think this is just very valuable information to be able to um, show someone who's concerned, show uh, the friendly racist in your life, um, why they're wrong. It's, it's great info uh, like that as well. Um, See, and again, there are some Jews who are racist. We can't deny that, just like there's Christians and Muslims and Hindus, and there's some of everyone who doesn't like people who are different from them. That's human nature. And those people may find support for their misguided opinions in the Torah, but that doesn't mean it's what the Torah says. Again, they can select something that they seem to feel gives the message they want to receive. But you look at the whole picture and it really becomes apparent that that's not the case. Totally. Marie Kondo's cleaning philosophy, Shintoism, that was kind of um, an interesting, that was a big fad a little while ago. It never really got to me because I don't really need to, I don't, so. I could not believe the amount of conversation on the web that took place after that article appeared. People were strongly emotionally invested in uh, in this particular topic for some reason. Um, I think I think it was probably my my offhand uh, comment about yoga and uh, and the fact that the Lubavitcher Rebbe was against yoga. And uh, I think this created a dichotomy because people like the Lubavitcher Rebbe and people like yoga. And if he didn't like yoga, it it creates a bit of a you know, who do I side with in this debate kind of thing. Um, but still, there was definitely a lot of debates on the uh, on the Marie Kondo article that uh, definitely got people's blood boiling, much to my surprise, because I don't, I don't feel that strongly on the subject. But uh, like you said, it was a big bad for a while. Yeah, it was a big, it was a buzzing sort of trending topic. And I think people are still into it. And then I would say probably this year, which is so bizarre to me, um, the head shaving question, um, because of unorthodox, this was probably one of your most uh, read articles um, this year, um, which I see, you know, sometimes um, kind of getting a chance to talk about topics that are trending sort of in media, in, you know, people's minds, allows them to get to other topics that they maybe weren't looking for later. So that was, uh, you know, kind of just to sort of show you where the world is right now and really everything related to side curls and head shaving and wearing suits and wearing black. Like we sort of covered all those different external things. And those are some of the, uh, the most common um, things that people are searching for. Um, right. And it's interesting because when left. it comes to things like, like the externals, we all follow the same mitzvahs. 
the devil's in the details. You know, some people choose to fulfill right. the mitzvahs in a different way, but we're, we're all still doing the same thing. We're fungible. We can go to each other's minyanim. Exactly. Um, we about like 20, 30 seconds left. Any, any, uh, projects on the horizon, any new topics or books you think you might be interested in doing next? I have got a number of things on the horizon. I don't know the order in which I might pursue them. I actually started two books before this. I started to write a book about the Torah Shabalpeh, about the oral law. I have a drawer full of note cards bound with rubber bands into different chapters. Uh, I'm planning to, to revisit that. Uh, but based on how Ask Rabbi Jack goes, I might uh, continue with a volume two with more of the serious questions and perhaps even a volume 1.5 with those more tongue-in-cheek uh, questions. Cute, I like 1.5, a uh, la Harry Potter. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and our listeners can go out and get Ask Rabbi Jack, A Seen on Jew in the City by Rabbi Jack Abramowitz. Um, we are so grateful to have you part of our team, um, helping to contextualize things taken out of source, helping to make uh, Judaism, Orthodox Judaism meaningful when so many people think that it's outdated and unfair and has no place in the modern world. So Hashem should bless you with continued health, a long life, and the ability to continue to reach Jews all over the world. Thank you, you too. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening. You can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.